Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today is the first part of a series, a series of two, on transracial adoption. Today, we're going to be talking about trauma and transracial adoption with Dr. Gina Samuels. Dr. Samuels is an associate professor at the University of Chicago's School of Social Service Administration and the incoming director at the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. She is an adult transracial adoptee. She has a newly published article in the journal Child Abuse and Neglect titled Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption. Be sure to tune in next week for the second and last part of our series on transracial adoption, where we're going to be viewing transracial adoption from the eyes of a transracial adoptee, his birth mother, and his adoptive mom. It's going to be a terrific interview and fairly unique because of the perspective of all three in the triad. So make sure you come back next week to listen to the second part of this series as well. Welcome, Gina. May I call you Gina on the uh, on air? Please, please do. <laughs> okay. I prefer it. Dr. Samuel slash Gina. Yeah, I don't know. If you got a doctorate, I think you deserve to be at least called doctor, uh, since I don't have one. Anyway, all right. So, Gina, welcome to Creating a Family. The article was great. It was, I learned something, and it was, it was really thought-provoking. Again, the title is Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption. Am I pronouncing, first of all, I, I learned something I did not know about. <laughs> a new epi- word. Yeah, a new word. Yeah, great. In our family, we would have said uh, when the kids were little, or not little, but in high school, we go, SAT word, every time somebody would say a big word. So talk about an SAT word. And Yes. Yeah, that's a big SAT word. Uh, uh, all right, so uh, we're going to talk about that, if I'm saying it correctly. we're, gonna, we're gonna, Before we talk about epistemic trauma, I want to begin by talking about for just trauma. How do we define trauma? And then if you would contrast that to complex trauma, and then we're going to introduce epistemic. Okay, great. Yeah. So some of this actually came from my own dissatisfaction from how we do sort of engage trauma. And when I say we, I'm probably inviting a whole lot of people to the table here. So we, as in people who are clinicians, we, as in those of us who research topics that are either proximal or directly informed by what we might call trauma. Uh-huh. And so, you know, as most people, lay people out in the world, they think about trauma in terms of an event, you know, like a like Katrina or uh, a school trauma, shooting. A school, school shooting. shooting. Yes. Exactly. These things that, you know, undeniably are trauma and all or of abuse. us agree yeah. or abuse and neglect. Yeah. So something that has happened to someone through an event that it's traumatic, traumatic meaning it disturbs someone's development. It disturbs their sense of safety. It disturbs them psychologically and often so much so that we, that one carries it even after the event has happened and that people may have what now a lot of people know as a post-traumatic stress disorder where, you know, a loud noise can completely Mm -hmm. jar them and bring them back to that feeling Mm -hmm. in a, in a, in a visceral way to how they felt and the lack of safety that they felt in that moment. So that's a very common understanding of of trauma. And we have a whole lot of research that suggests how damaging that is for Mm -hmm. people, especially young people, babies, uh, young children, and and then even adults to experience these things in our world can have lifetime impacts. And so we spend much of our time at Creating a Family talking about 
trauma in that in 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 that definition of trauma. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a comment that's been a huge gift to our society in terms of the naming and languaging that, and that has Mm -hmm. sort of rippled across a lot of fields in terms of how we think about trauma. And then you named complex trauma. So then there's this next body of research that has really been important in helping us to understand that there are ways in which trauma is sometimes out in the world in the ether of of the the ways in which we live in an unsafe place and space. Oftentimes, that's a literature that we've used in a really helpful way to characterize interpersonal trauma and family trauma through abuse and neglect that comes through our relationships that we have with people that oftentimes are, are not just an event, but characterize the entire relationship that we have or characterize the mm-hmm. condition in which we live that is traumatic. More contemporary writing about racism also mm-hmm. identifies it as a complex trauma that is just sort of how we live in the world that assaults people as racialized beings and can be harmful. Mm-hmm. And so part of my coming to this this ex- this epistemic trauma is that it invites a whole nother layer of complexity to think about how as human beings, we are knowers and that sometimes the harm that we do to one another is, a, is at that level of, you know, what we know, who gets to know, who gets to be a knower, who gets to claim knowledge, who gets to produce knowledge about their own experience. And that oftentimes the ways we engage one another can exert injustices and harms to people in that way. And in terms of their ability to make meaning. And a lot of times we give examples of epistemic injustice as, you know, the the hashtag me too moment, the ways in which women are oftentimes undermined as knowers of their experience of their bodies and their sexualities when they are uh, sexually assaulted or abused or harassed and told then as they are testifying about these experiences, well, maybe it was because the way you were dressed, or maybe mm-hmm. it was, are you really sure that that was ha- happening? And so or, our or something gas- else under, under gaslighting was with the word yes, under, yeah. <laughs> undermining what he was just flirting with you or right. It yeah. wasn't that serious. Like it just yeah. was a joke. Can't you oh, yeah. just take a yeah, joke? Yeah. Get off of it. He was just kidding. You know? Yeah. 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 Why are you being so sensitive? Yeah. So, you know, when that happens to a person, you start to yourself question like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and when a whole society does this in a systematic way, it is deeply traumatizing because it fundamentally harms a person to have a sense of confidence that they ha- they are seeing what they're seeing, they're feeling what they're yeah. feeling, that they have the capacity to actually take in the world and make meaning of it, and that when they express what they're feeling, the world responds with a, I may, I may not totally get it, but yes, I believe it's true. But when you don't have that experience, that it can very be very traumatizing to people's development over time. And, and we know that in in the more traditional sense of the word of trauma uh, that you first describe an event. We talk about that with sexual abuse or any form of abuse, that one of the most powerful things that an Mm -hmm. adult in the child's life can do is believe them, listen to them, allow them to be the knower of what happened to them as opposed to undermining them and saying, well, are you sure? Or maybe it was just you were being spanked because you did something wrong. Are you sure? You know, this type as opposed to what the child is saying might yes. be a- abuse. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is the same logic just brought into racial abuse. And when people are articulating harm, how do we not meet them with a, are you sure? Are you sure that that happened? And how developmentally damaging that is when, when that's our response to a person. 
And that ties into, and we're going to go into that because that's when you speak of, of doing that on a racial level, that is one of the ways that you articulate in the article, Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption, about how it is traumatic, how, tra- how transracial adoption can be traumatic. You, you talk about it in sense, uh, uh, should, we, should we talk about the, the trauma that can be associated, the epistemic trauma. So I don't want people jumping up and down saying that we are undermining the, <laughs> the essence of trauma because now, you know, a hangnail is trauma. I've, you know, how many times right, have you heard right, that? Right, right, right. Everything's right. trauma now. Yeah, everything's trauma now. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> okay, so I, I hope that our introduction is, is we aren't saying that. You're not saying no, that. No, you are saying no. that there's a different level, a different type of trauma. Maybe it'd be better if we didn't have yet a different word, but we don't. The yes, word we have yeah. is this. So, so before we go into applying the idea of epi- and exploring it with transracial, would it be helpful to start with exploring how it might apply to adoption in general? Or do you feel, mm-hmm. okay, good. Sure, sure, sure. So part of what I take up in the article is the way that adoption generally is a site of uh, that's or a practice and an institution that's organized around what I call and what has been written about before me information poverty. So part of knowledge is actually having information. And there's a whole lot of ways in which historically we've practiced adoption and that adopted people are expected to live with a very precarious relationship to information about themselves, their own history, their not their names before they were adopted, et cetera. And that there's a lot of ways just be outside of race that adopted persons oftentimes are a group of displaced knowers generally and then have relationships with people where they're told how to think about their experience. So mm-hmm. we have, you know, this whole rhetoric of beginnings in adoption where adopted children are exposed to different storylines around how they became adopted, you know, and it's as sometimes as fictitious as the stork story that children who are not adopted mm-hmm. are told about how they came into existence mm-hmm. in their families. And, you know, on one level, we can look at this as innocuous kind of harmless things that we tell little kids like Santa and other sorts of Mm -hmm. fictitious characters in life that serve their purpose at a particular moment. But when you think about it as a whole structure of the ways in which um, adopted people are legally prevented from accessing or how difficult, even in the context of today's open adoption, then it starts to, I hope, invite us to ask questions. Who does this serve? Who does this serve to keep this information from whom and to protect it from whom? And how do we understand basic rights of of a class of people who are adopted to basic information that might help them to more fully access things in society? Don't you think, though, we at this point now, there is certainly, it's hard to imagine an adoption professional not encouraging the sharing of information. What we do here especially the basics of the information that you were adopted or whatever. Surely we are past that as a, as an institution, but I still, we still get pushed back and it's, we've been saying it for a long time that the child's story is, is theirs. And even if there are hard parts of that child's story before they turn 13, they have the right to know that part of the story. And we say before 13, because it's better for identity formation, we believe for them to understand the, some of the hard parts, if there are hard parts of their story. 
And we do get pushback on that. The how, what good is it for them to know how it, you know this? You were conceived by rape. Well, how is that possibly going to help you? We do get pushback on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, but do you see in general though that that the adoption profession is still withholding the basics of knowledge, or, or does it really matter if you withhold any of the knowledge? Well, I see, yeah, I think that's a good question. I agree that we have made leaps and bounds in our understanding of the importance of openness, the importance of talking about adoption. And I think even still, there are pockets of adoption that happen still where there are professionals and there are parents and there are biological parents that want closure. You know, So I think mm-hmm. we, we can both exist in this ethos of yeah. as much openness as is possible is good and also have a variety of actors in that in sure. that moment <laughs> that have different relationships to what that means and for whose best interest, when do we share, Yeah, how do we share, and then how that actually plays out for the adopted person. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there's been this added gloss on top of that in terms of just generally the storylines of adoption that are available to us in our society. And I think there wow. we still have a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. like books and children's stuff and just out there in, in the world storylines yes. that are still anchored in this adoption is a good thing. It's always only a good thing. Your life begins then, and it's a repair to anything that happened to before to you. It's all existed before uh-huh. in some other land before. And so uh-huh. I think that still shows up even in families that are open, <laughs> even totally. in, you know, it, even in totally. how you tell your story to other people when they find out you're adopted. And so there's these layers of very narrow storylines that then implicate information and complexity of information to be able to tell your story in its fullness. That is so, let me share something that it's it's happening as we speak. As I read the article, Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption, I, uh, you you have a quote in there that I loved. So the quote, uh, and I posted it in our Facebook group. We have a really large, (laughs) we have a really large Facebook group of primarily uh, foster adoptive and kinship parents. And the quote is, adoption loss is the only trauma in the world where Mm. the victims are expected by the whole of society to be grateful. And let me give credit, it is uh, attributed to Reverend Keith Griffith, which I found out through this discussion is from New Zealand. And I've heard versions of it, but I have not. So I I posted that. We are now at 246. Oops, somebody just added 247 comments on that that quote. And and many of it, it... Many, in fact, the majority probably would be agreeing with everything, with the quote. But we still get, but there are still definitely people who are, if not offended by, it's it's the notion what you just said before, that adoption is seen as the perfect solution. It is the, it is the, for and I'm using your quotes, the salvation for these children. We are saving these children. Therefore, anything other than gratitude. So, not to come, keep coming back to the word gaslighting, but if you were a, <laughs> a, a as an adopted person, if you didn't, if you felt gratitude, but you also felt loss and grief and anger and and a host of things, yeah. If you're if the if the gratitude mantra is is it's it's it feels like it would just be shoving it down your throat. It would be yeah. sh- you would have it to be um, shoving all the other emotions down. Is what it would feel like. I'm not yeah. trying to put words in your mouth, yeah. but yeah, it's like a mass gaslighting. 
It's, it's just, yes, yes. Sort of like, I'm feeling this way. I'm feeling all of these ways. And, you know, yeah. when you step back from it, most experiences are not exclusively good or horrid. There are no. some that I would put on a list that are yeah. maybe yeah. exclusively horrid. Yeah. Um, so but to, most exclusively to. good things have mixed emotions. I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. come on. All families do. All families have good and bad things. All relationships yeah. that are healthy right. generally have good and bad aspects. So yeah. why wouldn't adoption also Absolutely. be that way? Yeah. So I feel like it's just an example of a situation where we have this, this condition that is quite common in our society now, but we haven't been able to move forward in a complex way to really look at it and peel back the onion on multiple layers to hold multiple people's perspectives of it. And I, you know, like if, if someone is adopted or have, has adopted and sees it as exclusively positive, and that is what it has been for all involved, then keep your storyline. Like I feel like, but there we're are, not, there we're are not are trying other... to gaslight you either. No, you know? I'm not, yeah. I have no interest yeah. in that, but just make space for others to be able to articulate some experiences that also were really hurtful and some experiences that were all of the above and to hold the complexity that just is normal in in so many experiences. So I just feel like it's a, it's an unhelpful thing for people to hold on to. Everybody's experience has to be articulated in a singular way. That's what's harmful. Right. I should say we have many adult adoptees in the group as well. And it's been interesting because some of them are pushing back as well. Yes, yes. Don't tell, in fact, there's one who just posted and said something right before uh, we started the interview saying, don't tell me. I do feel gratitude. And so it's, it's so, and some of the other adoptees are coming in saying, you can feel what you feel, you know? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there is, but there is some of this because we get, we hear this, we get Facebook messages and, and emails about saying, if I say anything, speaking of our group or others, it's the, uh, uh, if I say anything positive, I'm told that I'm drinking, I've drank the Kool-Aid yeah. and that's, and yeah. that's, and that bothers me too, but that's, yes. uh, so yeah. Okay. Hey guys, when you follow the creatingafamily.org podcast, the very one you are listening to right now, you also gain access to our extensive archives on all sorts of topics like trauma, transracial adoption, being the best parent you can be, and things such as that. We interview leading experts on these topics, and we've been doing so for almost 15 years. Therefore, we have (laughs) <laughs> to put it mildly, a large library, including other interviews we've done with Dr. Samuels. So please follow or subscribe to the creatingfamily.org podcast. Let's move on. Now, we've talked about how the this type of epistemic trauma can exist in the world of adoption in general. But now let's move on to specifically talking about transracial adoption. So how specifically, well, and you posit at one point that the condition of being transracially adopted can represent, and I'm using a quote here, intersectional minoritized status. What do you mean by that? Mm -hmm. So what I'm meaning is that, you know, if we start with a place of adoption generally is having this, you know, narrative of rescue and we unpack who is it who has had access to formal adoption, then you can't have that conversation and not also then invite conversations about whiteness, white people, class, nation, and the ways in which we are arranged in the context of power. And 
that when you look at a history of transracial adoption, it's unescapable to understand it, not in the context of colonialism, the removal of children for re reducing the friction problems, um, what was called in the case of Native Americans in the U.S., the Indian problem, mm -hmm. and the placing, the forcible placement of children into boarding schools, which happened in Australia, you know, like Canada, these, there are other, yeah, Canada, US, there are other countries that have US. these history histories. And so when you think about that, the only socially just way to talk about a, a transracial adoption is in the context of that. And when you think about that, and then the other narratives of how in our country, we have glossed a simple storyline of rescue, redemption, you know, that that still the ways we talk about mm -hmm. um, Native Americans and reservations and where the, where are Native Americans and how we talk about them versus how we talk about Black people, that it's unavoidable, the white supremacy that is inherent in many of these storylines. So that part of what I talk about in my, in my paper is that the gratitude that all adopted persons are asked to sort of give voice to, which is, I would argue, a classist kind of gratitude, becomes then a classist and a racist kind of gratitude of, of how could it possibly be a bad thing to be a Black person and be proximal to white people? It's it's a psychological, like, una, unavoidable impossibility for many, many people to imagine that that would be anything but an advantage. And that would be, and, yeah. and so we just don't have a psychology that understands that it actually could be harmful mm -hmm. to people of color to be that proximal all the time. Not like a biculturalism, not like a, you know, I'm able to navigate multiple worlds, but my only world is that. Mm -hmm. And so I've actually had conversations with people of color where they're like, what do you mean it was hard, Gina? Like, <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean? What are you complaining about? You know, like, uh, you, you know, and so there just is not a, in a, in a world that has such a understanding of whiteness from, from white supremacy, that it's only a good thing, that white people only do good things, that white people have only contributed good things in our society, built good things, represent good things. Or that association with would only be a positive thing for, from somebody from yeah. a minority. Okay. Yeah. What do you mean by classist? You, you were racist, but in what way you were saying adoption is classist in what way do you mean so i think a lot of you know a lot of the understanding of who the biological families and birth families are of adopted people are poor unwed mothers that you know had to give up their children because they couldn't afford to or they were too young and that adopters have tended to be middle and upper middle class mm -hmm. families who provide a quote unquote better life Mm -hmm. And that's cla that's classes, right? Because it assumes that if you're poor, you can't possibly have a good life, <laughs> mm -hmm. or that, or you know, vice versa, not, that if you have money, that you're automatically going to have that a you're good automatically life. happy. Yeah. And we just know that's not true. So I think that's a classist presumption that you know if you if you class jump from one family to another, that auto all of a sudden there's only good things that come from that, and or that being in a two parent family is superior to being raised by a single parent. And while there's certainly pathways that might support that, <laughs> there's also a lot of research that suggests that a lot of horrible things happen in two-parent families and that mm -hmm. two, having two parents doesn't save you from poverty. It doesn't necessarily save you from other experiences. And so it's that same lack of complexity in the storyline that I think we have in adoption that sort of subtly assumes that if you're adopted class-wise, you've you've improved that you're better off. It's bet that is better for you. And sometimes that is true. And that's 
wonderful. <laughs> Sometimes it's not. And so the same then happens with, with race, that there's a presumption that when you're transracially adopted, that you're better off. And, and underneath that oftentimes is unspoken classism, but also is unspoken racism is what mm-hmm. I'm arguing. Mm-hmm. And does your opinion, does not your opinion, does your argument change at all when we're talking exclusively about children who have been adopted through foster care? And let me f- start by saying there's there's classism and racism that can exist there. And certainly we know that children have been removed for what virtually is poverty, not neglect. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, that, and so acknowledging that, but does that how does that play in that when we say that if a child had been neglected or abused, acknowledging that that's not always the case when children yeah. are removed? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the same history is is there of classism or racism as you nodded to the classism of it. But those families are also disproportionately black. And so we mm-hmm. still have this weird condition and this racist condition of a system that exists in relation to a community that it has historically oppressed, where then children are coming into that system under the storyline of we're rescuing them and that it's for their best interest and then making decisions. Now, many of the children in foster care are not transracially adopted. So, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it adds complexity and all of the children in, in the child welfare system now, particularly because of laws that it may have made it much more difficult to remove children, do have substantiated histories of abuse and neglect. And so that adds a whole nother layer of, you know, concerns, uh, developmental concerns onto, you know, racial, like I'm writing right now a a thing about my own child welfare practice when I was a caseworker and had to balance immediate Mm -hmm. needs for a child needed a home today. Yeah. Today. Yeah. I was practicing in actually yesterday. (laughs) Yes. Yesterday. And is, you know, I was practicing in a predominantly white community with a predominantly black caseload. I transracially placed, had to, had to transracially place many, many children in homes because that was who was available to provide care. And, you know, and so these, these things are, are real considerations, but I think it's, they are oftentimes pitted against each other as though somehow I can't also be worrying about and concerned about these long-term needs that children have around identity. And I, I think they're false choices that we think that like, oh, just because I then placed a child in a white home, I'm not also having these really hard conversations with the parents about race and ethnicity and all of these other things. Or that we need to be on a very conscious and and putting money behind it as well, recruiting more families of color uh, to be both foster and adoptive families. Yeah. So that's the, that's the other thing, you know, that thing. I'm going to read a quote from the article and I want to talk about it. This is a, a quote. If I were to name the hardest part about being transracially adopted, the thing that has brought me to rage, to exhaustion, or to my knees, or to the feeling of isolation and unrelenting otherness. It is the discrediting I have experienced when dialoguing with others about it. Talk to us some about that, the discrediting. In what form has the discrediting, have you experienced discrediting when you have tried to talk about your experience as a transracial adoptee? Yeah, so I think that that probably sums up for me both my experiences being transracially adopted and my experience of being mixed race is that I think these are two statuses that pretty much every community thinks of as inauthentically something like you're you're removed in some kind of way and different in some kind of way 
that it's very difficult to, to walk into a place and, and say, here's how, it, here's how it is. And, and everyone sort of looks at you a little bit suspect. And so, you know, it happened when I was little and people would ask, what's this like? And I would start to talk about what, whatever this was. Usually they were asking me about being mixed or being transracially adopted. And as I would start to answer their question, they would then engage in this, are you sure? But really, or they kind of look at me like, "Mm, oh, isn't that sweet? Like, you know, and this would happen from white people, from black people, from Asian people, from every, every people, every group Uh of people racialized. And then tell you how lucky you are, no doubt. And then tell me either how lucky I am or I didn't really understand that. Or don't I think that that's maybe because I was raised with white people? Or do I really think that maybe, you know, like that there was some part of me that they were attuning to that then they would attach to, to sort of say, well, because you're this you don't know about this. So it's always having one part of me used against this other part that I'm trying to explain to this person who asks a question who's presumably doesn't know. Or now, you know, even having all the credentialing that I have. And you got locked. <laughs> I, yeah, well, maybe, but um, still, it still happens. You know, yeah, where, and, well, I will be on But yet panel. it still happens. But yet it still happens. And so it's stunning. In what way does it happen in your life as an adult? So, you know, I will be presenting my work or my scholarship on something and people, a person will raise their hand and say, but don't you think that's because, you know, you were raised here? Or don't you think it's because you're mixed that you're feeling this way? Or do you think that if you were, you know, this, then you wouldn't have said this? Or do you think maybe, you know, and and I, you know, to be really clear, like I have grown up being um, interrogated about pretty much every aspect of my experience. So I am very comfortable and invite criticisms and disagreements. I don't think that people have to, you know, just because I experience things this way or that I analyze my data in a particular way. I I think it's critically important to have multiple perspectives on the same experience or the near same experience. I think that's essential and important. I just would like mine to be included. Sure. um, And so it's it's a stunning, I think it's just a um, sort of a marker of what is kind of epistemically distinct about being someone who lives across binaries. I think it's it probably happens to other people who you know are like non-binary with regard to gender or non-binary with regard to sexuality or not, you know, like or even first binary. generation immigrants sometimes speak mm-hmm. of that experience. Of, I mean this third culture of like yeah. weird experience of like in-betweenness. I think for any of us who live in these in-between spaces, it is probably a common experience for many of us to have to constantly be bridging, defending, and sort of negotiating space. I love that. I love that. Living in the in-between. And and how does that... How does that play with the... You mentioned it before, because you are both mixed-race and transracially adopted. So it seems like you would have two in-betweens. Yeah. So this goes back to that, you know, that's that quote that you opened with, where there are these intersectional minoritized identities that sort of mutually reinforce each other, you know? So, you know, my mixedness, because I look that visually, I'm very, so people aren't going to see me, but I'm light skinned. I have these sort of racially ambiguous characteristics to me. I get mistaken for being Latina all the time. My middle, my last, my first last name, Miranda, reifies that uh, perception of me. 
And so that sort of signals to people a proximity to whiteness. When I open my mouth and start talking, I talk in a way that also indicates a proximity mm-hmm. to whiteness. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, my transracial adoption is also another kind of family identity that removes mm-hmm. and displaces me into whiteness. And all of the stereotypes about being mixed race, all the stereotypes about being transracially adopted are very similar and overlapping. And so they sort of come together in a nice storm <laughs> to create, you know, to mutually reinforce one another so that when I'm out in the world, people don't know that I'm, you know, transracially adopted, but they see me. Uh-huh. And so there's a, you know, there's kind of a little invitation visually to wonder like, where am I from? Where did you grow up? And then I answer questions that then also affirm certain things, maybe contest others. And so there, there are these ways in which embodying mixedness, both by yeah. family and by uh, racial heritage, kind of mutually reinforce these experiences of in-betweenness, I think. Yeah, that makes that makes really good sense. So let's talk specifically, you identify certain ways in which transracial adoption can be traumatic. The obvious first beginning would be racism, but so let's start with there, but let's let's go on and, and talk about ways that, that transracial adoption can be traumatic or epistemically traumatic, if not by the standard definition of traumatic. Yeah. So I think, you know, I want to start by saying I I actually don't believe that transracial adoption has to be traumatic. I, I don't. And I think that, you know, increasingly people are living in all kinds of ways in, in mashups by race, by gender, by class, by religion, and that this is a beautiful thing that can be beautiful and be made beautiful. However, the way that transracial adoption even today continues to play out tends to be that it's a white couple or white parent who lives in an incredibly white space raising children who are not white. So that part of my argument is that being transracially adopted doesn't cause racism, but it causes a very particular proximity to whiteness that exposes you to racism with very few places of racial safety. And so it's that you, you know, given the world, the way the world still is, and given the place that white people generally still are in their own racial awareness and development, that it places kids at risk for a very insidious proximity to racism without supports and people Mm -hmm. who are able to be there and adults and similar same age peers who are going through something similar, where you then would able to naturally be able to access some respite from it in the ways that Mm -hmm. kids who are of color, but have parents who are of color and Mm -hmm. may go to school where there are other kids of color. And so there's just, there's other spaces Mm -hmm. where you can access similar others who can, you know, help you and support you ideally. Now I realize mm-hmm. there are all kinds of people who grow up and that's not the way it goes down for them. So yeah, but still I, I, your points well taken that, that at least if a child has others in their life that look mm-hmm. like them and who have experienced the racism that they are experiencing, they wouldn't feel so alone with it. If nothing you, else, you don't feel quite so alone. And so I think a lot of transracial adopted children even today still have a experience with racism where they're feeling very alone Mm -hmm. in it and Mm -hmm. don't always tell their parents actually even when they have parents that would be there for them and (laughs) fight with them and all that I know I didn't there's a lot that I didn't tell my mom about and she was totally would have gone in there and that was partially why I didn't because it was 
I don't want you to fight my battles or, you know, you're so embarrassing. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And that happens with kids on all kinds of fronts, not just race. Like kids don't tell their parents, unfortunately, all kinds of things. And so I think that that, you know, like in transracial adoption, there's just a particular way in which this is a group of kids of color who experience the same racism as any child of color will in this Mm -hmm. society, but they have to experience it in oftentimes predominantly white schools where they have a white parent or parents that may or may not always be attuned to what's happening in that mm-hmm. school. Sometimes transracially adopted children experience racism in their own families and in mm-hmm. their own extended families, which gives a whole nother gloss to what it means mm-hmm. to be experiencing racial harm from people who are supposed to be protecting you from mm-hmm. it, who may not or may not just not have the wherewithal and the the skills to be able to really be there for their kids when they're hurting with regard to to race and ethnicity and i think that still is is happening and it is might, You're you know <laughs> and might be thinking that you know by giving kids a a korean doll or teaching them about kimchi or going mm-hmm. to culture camp a couple times a year that that's going to do it and it and it is so woefully inadequate for what a kid needs every day to be negotiating racism. So I think there's that level of, you know, just kind of aloneness. But then I think there's also for those of us who grew up where we do have opportunities to connect with kids who aren't adopted, who are black or Korean or Chinese or native or Latine or whatever the identity is that we're doing our own work on, that then there's a rejection we experienced there because we were transracially adopted and because mm-hmm. we may not be native speakers of, of Chinese or because we, whatever it is, talk mm-hmm. the way that we do or dress the way that I do, our hair isn't the certain way or whatever that is. And then we got to go through a whole nother layer of loss of, of like, what is, oh my gosh, you <laughs> know, like I'm not, I, I'm not going to be white. I don't maybe want to be white. Or there are some kids who do struggle with some of this, trying to figure out like, culturally am I, I'm white, but racially I'm not. So they're going through all that kind of stuff in the, in their white worlds. And then when they are exposed to communities that aren't proximal to whiteness, where they're supposed to be getting all this enculturation, oftentimes part of that also is at the expense of being stigmatized around how proximal they are to whiteness and, mm-hmm. and also being then have to left, be left alone because their white parents can't help them figure out like, Whiteness isn't hasn't been so good to me, you know, like mm-hmm. it's yeah. for, for me, and, you know, and I don't want my white parents hanging out at African World Fest with me because this actually yeah. harms my ability to to slip in and access blackness. And so yeah. my white having my white parents with me is not supportive in this space. And who do I talk to about that? <laughs> yeah. What is exactly. my group? Yeah. To who is my tribe? My, yeah. Yeah. That's just a lot. Yeah, we hear it from kids saying, you know, well, do I belong in the Black Student Association when they go to college or the, the you know, the, uh, the Chinese Student Association? Do I belong there? And will I be accepted there? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And often, it's, you know, eventually, I think it depends. <laughs> it depends. All of these racial ethnic groups have different, you know, kind of prices to pay, different, you know, uh, litmus tests. For some, it's language competency, you know, so some of it, it's just cultural knowledge, you know, mm-hmm. about different things. And, and some, I think, adopted people and some mixed race people decide that that's just too hard 
like that's just too too tall a bridge to climb and they give up which i think is sad because it cuts them off of mm-hmm. a community that could be deeply supportive to mm-hmm. dealing with racism but because of the ways they were raised and the places they were raised or their own sort of declinations and personalities or some combination of all of that, or the message, their first time experiences, how traumatic that might be when you're actually told by somebody who is whatever, that you're never going to be that. And you're not that. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't want you here. Well, that's hard. It's hard to keep on going back to say, please, that's abusive too. Yeah. So, well, it's a perfect, you're defining epistemic trauma. I mean, to me, that's, yeah. isn't that what you're defining right there? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you're not a knower. You're not a knower. You don't know. You haven't known. And I think we pay for prices that and choices that oftentimes our parents made for us. And we're the ones that have to go out there and live with that and live through that. And some people just decide that it's just not worth it. And many of us make other choices, but there's a, a long road of of a process of building trust and learning things. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of adopted people that are in, in the middle of like learning their, their own, making up their own family recipe for kimchi or making up their own family recipe for sweet potato copai. Cause it doesn't come from their parent. <laughs> you know, yeah. like these things that are so anchored in culture that when you get into cultural communities of origin of your own, you know, and people be like, well, I remember when my grandma made greens this way and my yeah. great grandmother did this. And you're like, I don't have these things. So mm-hmm. I've got to be the I've got to be the start in my own family of how we how we do these things mm-hmm. and sort of reclaim different aspects of culture, which then also our heat can be very healing but also are sad because, you know, it's, no matter how good, no mm-hmm. matter how good you make that sweet potato pie, and no matter how good you do that, you know that you can't claim authenticity 20 generations back. Yeah. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Let me pause here for a minute to tell you about a free educational resource that we are offering thanks to the generosity of the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. We have 12 free online courses available now for you. Um, You can use these as part of your foster parent continuing ed requirements or in-service requirements if you have those, but you can also use them as just a parent in general who wants to be a better parent. We try to aim, these courses tend to aim for people who are actually in in the trenches, actual parents. So uh, you can find them at bit.ly slash jbf support. That's b-i-t dot l-y slash jbf support. You talk also, and and I hope I'm going to be pronouncing this right, hermeneutical smothering. And I know people are rolling their eyes going, oh, this is so so academic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I almost (laughs) didn't use it, but but the smothering part felt good to me. I have to admit that the first part I don't really get. But (laughs) hermeneutical, I wasn't sure of. But but the smothering, the, the idea that... What does it does it? Let me see if I'm right. That that your belief, you were raised in, in what you know because you know it. You know it instinctively. The do, it doesn't fit with what the dominant society believes, and they. It's it's is, is it another way of gaslighting, telling you that in yeah, fact, yeah, okay. that's very great. The way you explained it, I think the smothering part is the important part. The hermeneutical just means meaning. So it's like smothering someone's meaning. Oh, you know, okay. so it's it's gaslighting. It's it's, it's exactly gaslighting. We keep coming it's, back to that, don't we? <laughs> we do. We do. It's when somebody says, "This is what it meant to me," and people yeah. talk over 
took over and saying, no, 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 this is how it should mean. This is how oh. it should mean. And people keep on flooding you with the, no, 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 this is the story we want. This I is know. the way we want you to say it. This is how we need you to say it. Oh. And you keep on saying, but the, but, but that's not, but the, but that's the, not how know? I see it. <laughs> that's not how I see it. And it's, it's different for me to experience that. You asked me, you know, like, how does that still happen? It's different for me to have that happen now with, with you know, a PhD and an MSW and all these publications and all this fancy stuff behind my name but when you're five yeah and you're still figuring it out yourself yeah Yeah. you're much more vulnerable to and you know that if you argue with this adult who might be your parent or your uncle or your grandparent who you love sure you might lose you might lose their love you might lose their support you might lose you know that and so you collude in your own smothering so that you can get other things that you need as a child. And so yeah. I think the smothering is so important because it's about voice and 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 the ways in which we really do traumatize people in in being confident in their own voice. Yeah. And and understanding that that their understanding of their world is real. It's it is yeah, it's real. It, it, more real. I want to use another uh, quote again from the article, uh, Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption. And the quote is, My good grades, light skin, and complete assimilation culturally were undeniable assets in the white spaces I occupied, but they were also routinely used against me, deployed as evidence that real trauma from racism or transracial adoption was not the valid or meaningful part of my story. Can you explain that in the context of transracial adoption and the smothering that we were just talking about? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's just another way of like, we're not going to listen to your complexity. Because in order to do that, that that asks white people to understand themselves as sources of harm. And so we only want to know how great it's been. And since we can see that, we can see that you have done things that in our world are valuable and matter, and you're like us, then isn't that great? And, and there should be, you know, like, and is, and there shouldn't be, if it was really bad, you wouldn't be getting bad. You would be getting bad grades. You, if it was really bad, it was really traumatic, you know, you'd be in jail or something like, but you're not these things that are the stereotype of blackness. You're like us and let's celebrate that. And so it's this smothering of like, you have to, you know, this, this kind of insistence that you have to tell a story of your experience that affirms us and uh-huh. that affirms our idea of ourselves and that any part of your story that doesn't do that we are going to drown it out we don't want to hear it would it also follow then that they would also say the reason that you are getting good grades the reason that you have your phd and your msw and 100 publications and directorships because you were adopted is be- no but are raised in a well because you were adopted yeah yeah well yes both actually wouldn't it be yes. it would be not yes. only that you were adopted but but adopted were, by white people by white people so it's both the classism and racism that you were speaking of the classism Toge- yes, being together yeah. yeah it is those two things together and that if i would have stayed where i was you know, I would, that would have never happened. And even though now I've done a search and learned that actually it might've happened and particularly on my black side, it might've happened <laughs> that I got a PhD and that I got college degrees and all that sort of thing, which is not, a, uh, I would not have been first generation PhD in my black family. 
it just can, you know, it just sort of, it, it, it draws on these stereotypes that white people have of black people and who black people are as both a race and a class inferior status. Mm-hmm. And so it's the, it loops into, it loops in their own racism and classism and asks me to perform it as an embodiment of their, mm-hmm. of their beliefs about where I come from and who my people are and what I've been rescued from. Yeah. Saved, rescued, and that word again. Yeah. All right. So how can we do better? Now, I'll start by saying one of the ways we do better is putting more emphasis on keeping children in their homes, which is the whole gist of prevention, you know, the the providing services that will provide support for families who are struggling so that children don't have to be removed. So getting that certainly, and hopefully with some of the new federal legislation and, and federal money coming, that that might make there may be at least money going towards that. So having said that, though, what what are some ways that we can do better in general, not just as transracial adoptive mm-hmm. parents, but also as the institution of adoption? So both, if we could talk about start with the institution of adoption and then how can how can transracially adopted parents do better? Both. Yeah. Well, I think it's, you know, first just kind of disrupting this need for a single story that there's complexity, you know, and, and everything that, you know, if I would have, to your point about, you know, how do we do a better job of just supporting families so that, that families can stay together and that people can live in the communities of their origin. And that also requires us to invest in all human beings in this Mm -hmm. nation in a very different way than we ever have been willing to do. And so, I might argue that some of it is just, you know, there's a there's a whole movement now around abolishing child welfare. And many of the arguments around abolishing child welfare is this history and legacy of racism and classism and disenfranchising communities of color, particularly black and indigenous communities in the U.S. And part of what, you know, I'm wanting to have alongside that sort of a movement is how about we abolish things like white supremacy and racism and classism that are embedded in our society, that are embedded in colonialism, that are embedded in how we set up our systems such that families become so burdened and fractured that they find their ways to our systems and we find our ways to them in very punitive ways. And, you know, if I if I would not have been transracially adopted, I still would have been mixed race. I still would have been raised by a white woman who likely would have raised me in a very similar, if not whiter community than I was raised by my adopted parent. So we, we have these naturally occurring conditions, even outside of adoption and transracial adoption mm-hmm. that are problematic, that are that are, that segregate us from one another, that enact oppressions and disenfranchisements that harm people. And adoption and transracial adoption are a a symptom and exist within that larger society. So they're a reflection of who we are as a society. So I I just feel like the the key really is, is as a society taking on some of these very wicked and insidious problems that we have had for a very long time Mm -hmm. that exist across the globe that Mm -hmm. characterize our relationships with each other as human beings that are harming disproportionately some mm-hmm. of us, but I would argue all of us, and build systems that actually foster our growth and healing and interconnectedness as opposed to our oppressing one another mm-hmm. in the ways that we seem to set up our systems to do. Mm-hmm. That seems like such a long-term solution, though. It is. I, yeah. Yeah, I'm preaching to the choir, shall we say? <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Well, and I think that doesn't mean we don't do things immediately. You know, like I think there are things that we can do immediately to change some of this, but these are long standing yeah, problems. Well, valid point. Yeah. And you have to have, and you have to have your sights. If you're going to get to a, something in the distance, you have to at least be moving in that direction. So what are things that, let's say we're talking to a family that has transracially adopted and is wanting to know what they can do to, to prevent some of this and maybe the answer is you can't. Maybe that's just mm-hmm. part of it. Yeah. I don't know. But so what is, but I'm asking you then, what are some yeah. of the things that parents can do, if any? So I think what, what can be prevented or maybe uh, eliminated is we can't prevent racism. Everyone's, it's in our world. We can't prevent sexism. These are things that are in our society. And the idea that there's any place you could live or go where you're not going to experience it is fictitious. That's actually harmful belief. So to me, one of the things you can do is recognize that that is going to be a feature of your child's life. And I think that's actually, that's easily said, but I think that actually is a very difficult thing for many white people to really believe that their Mm -hmm. child is going to experience a world that they do not experience, that the, you know, beloved cabin or the lovely place where they went to school may be a wildly different world Mm -hmm. when their child goes to that space and to, Mm to first sort of recognize that that is true and taken that that's true to eliminate things like colorblindness or, you know, that the world is a fair place, that you will be judged by your character, you know, to to sort of let go of that as not necessarily a dream, like we all dream of that, but that that's not a reality. That's not the world we live in. And if you take that seriously, then, you know, what are the things that you as a white parent are likely going to need as part of your village of raising this child? Mm-hmm. How are you going to need to develop other alternative racial points of reference for making really important parental decisions about your child? Mm-hmm. You know, what are the relationships you need to ensure happen inside the family? How can you make sure that your extended family is a racially safe place for your kid? Mm-hmm. What are you willing to give up? in terms of relationships, in terms of places to be, in terms of jobs, of where you're going to live, of all these basic things that I think a lot of white people don't think twice about in terms of like, they just, you know, you live where you can afford and where you want to, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so taking seriously this other layer of concerns for your child and what does that really mean? And it doesn't mean that you go and you live on the most black side of town or that you, it doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean you start to invite these questions about the particularities Mm -hmm. of your family, of your strengths, of who you are, what you know, what your resources are, and make make decisions in probably a different way than if you were raising a child that, that racially looked like you. Thank you so much, Gina, Miranda, Samuels, for being with us today. The article is Epistemic Trauma and Transracial Adoption, and it's in the Journal of Abuse and Neglect. I truly appreciate your time today, and I appreciate your writing the article. Thank you.